Well, good morning, everyone. Well, we are beginning a new series today called Faith, and our creative team worked through the night to, uh, to uh, create a little bit of an intro for you, so let's look up at the screen here. Well, thank you, creative team, for that uh, <laughs> very spiritual, enlightening start to the, the series on faith there. <laughs> well, we are going to uh, continue the rest of our summer, and we'll be talking about faith. And uh, faith does sometimes affect us as we send our kids off to school in the morning, obviously. But we want this series and the purpose of it is... We believe that true faith should affect not only when we send our kids off to school, but it affects how we live and interact every single day, all of the time. And so this summer, what we'll be doing is we're studying through Hebrews chapter 11, and, uh, which is a, often called the faith chapter. And we're going to explore the different stories because he recalls the stories of men and women of faith throughout the Hebrew scriptures, throughout the Old Testament. So this summer, we'll be studying through some of those stories and looking at examples of faith lived out in everyday life. And so that will be kind of the purpose of this summer series. You know, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson once was speaking of faith, and he said, All that I have seen teaches me to trust the Creator for all that I have not seen. And our desire this summer is that we can be people who pause, who look, and, and in a world that is confused about faith, in a world that often says we don't appreciate people of faith anymore. Often faith is blamed for a lot of the evils of the world, which is, I think, misplaced blame. But so there's a lot of confusion of it. But our hope is that as we are people who, who really look around and study the stories of faith throughout history, we look at men and women of faith, we consider our own lives and lives, live the way that God's called us to. May we be reasons for people to say, as Emerson said, all that I have seen teaches me to trust the Creator for all I have not seen. And we'll find throughout these stories that it really we become the evidence and our faith becomes the evidence of the Creator God. And so that is one of the things that we'll be talking about. The, the great thing too about this series that kind of excites us is as we study these old stories of faith, we're connecting with this really ancient tradition uh, for at least 2,000 years of people following Christ. But even beyond that, some of these stories are, are 3,500 years old, maybe even longer, of men and women who followed God, who've handed their lives over and trusted in the character and the promises of God. And we can find ourselves connected in that ancient tradition, part of that narrative that God has been telling is His interaction with mankind from the beginning. So that's kind of a, a little bit of the outline of, of, or the purpose of why we are looking at this. Now we're also calling this vintage faith. Now I know when you, you think of vintage, some of you, and I've already heard to say like, does that have something to do with a good year of wine? And it may. 
Uh, but really, there's another part of the definition of vintage, and it's something of old and continuing interest, importance, or quality. So when we think of vintage faith, we think of a faith that is of continuing interest, importance, and quality. And this is not a new concept. This is something that's thousands of years old, a faith in a God and His promises. So that's what we'll be studying, and we're going to jump right into it in just a moment. So pray with me as we get started. Lord God, we thank you so much for this morning. Uh, I thank you for um, just another great day in San Diego. I thank you, that uh, God, for the breath in our lungs this morning, that uh, you are a giver of life. Um, and God, in a, a week when once again our country is, is asking some tough questions and wondering what's happening, God, may you teach us how to be men and women of faith uh, who can live your ways out in a world that's confused. And God, may we help be agents of change and transformation and uh, agents of the good that you want to see happen in this world. So Lord, may you transform us even as we study these stories of faith. And God, let these words be yours, not mine, uh, so that you may receive glory. And uh, this is not about any individual. This is not even about Seacoast. This is about you. And so God, would you receive the glory in this place this morning? In your name, amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. And that is where we will begin this series. And it starts off in Hebrews chapter 11. And, and the very first word, he says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For it, the men of old have gained approval through faith. Now, when we start there, before we even continue on and get any further, when we're talking about faith, we need to provide some context for faith and even context in light of this author's idea and he's speaking of faith. Because he jumps right in in chapter 11. For, by faith, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. But we need a little more context in what he is talking about. And the way to do it is really to read the whole uh, book of Hebrews, but we don't have time. So let, we'll just jump back to Hebrews chapter 10. And let's pick it up in verse 32. This really sets up the faith chapter. And the writer of Hebrews says this, Remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through the reproaches and tribulations, partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners, and you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For in yet a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction." But we are of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So the context that we're talking about in faith here, notice everything he talks about. He's writing to a group of, of followers of Jesus and says, remember that when you were enlightened, you, you started facing persecution. You started facing opposition for your newfound faith. You started facing opposition for the way in which you lived. And notice what he described as how, why he faced opposition. It wasn't because 
Because you took this stand on the corner and, and told everybody how they were wrong. It wasn't that you fought against people. It was because you had the nerve to visit the prisoners. It's another way to include, you had the nerve to have compassion and care for those who didn't deserve it. How dare you? Because of that, people looked at you and, and you faced opposition. Because you had the nerve, the way you lived your life, when people would take your possessions, whether they actually came and took their land, or that meant that they were generous with who they were, and they shared amongst one another, and they said, hey, when, the way God has blessed me, I want to use that to bless others. And, and certainly, I think it meant a, a possession of your time as well, and a possession of your talents and your energy. And as you gave to others, you had the nerve to do that. And people came against you. They marginalized you. That's the way you lived. Because you have for yourselves, you knew that you had a better possession and a lasting one. So the context here was there's a group of Christians who said, hey, why don't we follow the ways of Jesus as he encouraged us to do so? Let's do that. So they started following the ways of Jesus and they faced opposition. And they had need of endurance. Now, their opposition was even greater than just these things. It wasn't just ridicule. Some actually were imprisoned. Some lost their lives. They were facing great persecution for their faith. And he said, so you have need of endurance because it's not going to be easy living a life of faith, of true faith. It's going to be tough. And then in verse 39, don't forget this. We are not of those, though, who shrink back to destruction. In other words, who turn away from this faith that you declared, who say, maybe this isn't worth living. We're not of those. We are those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And this idea of preserving of the soul isn't this concept that somehow uh, your soul is destroyed or you lose your salvation. But he's saying, this is uh, really using this Greek kind of compared with the Hebrew idea of your life, your soul. It's Jesus even uses, do you want to gain the whole world yet lose your soul, the eternal life, the things that really matter? So the writer here of Hebrews says, we're not those who shrink back. We're going to endure because of our faith. And then he launches right in to say what faith is. So the context here of faith is that it's a tough world to live in. Most recent uh, reports speaking of faith kind of asked uh, Americans, a couple hundred thousand were surveyed. People who had faith, people who didn't have faith, people who would be considered Christian and all the different ages. And we find that those who would be considered evangelical Christians or Christians who, who firmly believe in the Bible and who believe that Jesus is the way to salvation, of those, there's especially among the millennials, of the millennial generation, about over 60% believe that they are sidelined and marginalized, that they shouldn't have a voice. And it's not because they say their faith doesn't give them a voice, it's because the pressures of society make them afraid to say what they believe or to live out their faith. So it's, it's difficult to be a follower of Jesus in this world. The context that the writer of Hebrews is writing to is very much like ours. Saying it's difficult. And we have a need to endure through this. And for a little bit of a bigger context of faith is this, is we need to understand that we live in a world that is fallen. And now, in the Christian world, when we say a fallen world, essentially what we mean is that mankind is not living under the authority of God in our lives, in general. When sin entered in in the very beginning, when mankind made a decision 
to choose to elevate ourselves and try to take the place of God, that that started off this kind of cosmic rebellion of humanity against God. And we want to do things by nature. We want to do it our way. We have a hard time deferring to God. We have a hard time not creating these idols and other things that become more important to us. So we live in a world, we call it as a fallen world. And because of that, because of sin that entered in, there's evil, there's chaos, there's pain. There's mornings when you don't want to get out of bed because your back hurts and your knees are sore. It's a result of the fall. And all of this has to do with the idea that things are not as God intended them to be. See, when God created the world, He created the world, and and, in, in Genesis, when He creates it, He says, it is good. And He creates mankind, and He says, this is very good. And all of it was good, and it was related to this Hebrew concept of shalom, which means peace. And it's related to the Hebrew word of shalem, which means completeness and fullness. So God's original creation was one in which was good, where there was peace between God and man. There was peace between man and, and it, between each other. There was peace in nature. Things were as they were meant to be, but sin entered and it no longer is. We don't have to look very hard to find evidence of that day after day. The world is not as it's meant to be. So the context of faith here is that the world has fallen. And we need people of faith to live the ways of God in this world. Because we are not those who shrink back to destruction, but those who have faith to preserving of the soul. Now let's jump into now, back into Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. So let's talk about the object of faith. What does this mean? The assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things unseen. Let's start with the second part of that because it's a little quicker. Uh, in, in Greek world, when you say the things unseen, it was referring to the supernatural or in the eternal world. So when you're writing in Greek to a Greek audience and you say things unseen, you're talking about the eternal world. And so it's a conviction in there's things unseen, that there is a firm belief that there's an eternal life, that there's a supernatural world. But we want to dwell a little bit more on this first part of here. The hope in the assurance, or sorry, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. What are the things that we hope for? What is the faith that they're talking about? Assurance of things hoped for. And in this context, to save us some time, I'll jump to it. They're talking about the promises of God. The things we hope in are the promises of God. Now these promises, keep in mind, are rooted in the character of God. Throughout Scripture, from the very beginning, even in the same chapter where the fall happened, where sin entered in, God made a promise. And He said, I will one day send My Son and we will crush sin once and for all. The first promise that was given right after the fall was that God promised to end this cycle of sin. And we found that fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Other promises of God we learn throughout Scripture, there's promises about God's presence as He says that I will be with you. You will not be alone in this world. Jesus confirmed that as well when Jesus was on earth and said, when I leave this place physically, I will send my Spirit to walk among you. We talked about that a little bit last week. So God's presence is with us. 
in this world. Now, sometimes it's difficult to feel God's presence or experience God's presence or believe that God is present. But He promises His presence would be with us. God promises that He will call the people to Himself. We'll find that in one of the stories when He calls Abraham as a covenant people became the nation of Israel and now it's the, the followers of Jesus Christ are a part of this people that God promised to call for Himself and through these people of God the world will be blessed. He said, I will bless, uh, the nations will be blessed through you. So God has promised to continue to work to redeem and restore this fallen creation. And these are just a few of the promises of God. There's, there's many we can look at. And throughout each of these stories, we'll find them being recalled. So God promises to empower His people as they live the way He's called us to live. Agents of His future kingdom, or His present and future kingdom. So when we talk about faith, what are the, the assurance of things hoped for? It's hope in the promises of God that are rooted in the character of God. A God who is patient. A God who is just. That there will be justice for the evil in the world. A God who is forgiving. That He is, will lend His forgiveness time and time again to, for those who are seeking it. A God full of compassion for the brokenhearted, the marginalized, the oppressed. Do you think God's heart breaks when people in our own nation feel the weight and, and, and experience Things like we saw this last week and the last several weeks. I think God, God's heart breaks when He sees this underlying racism that can continue in parts of our nation. It exists. His heart breaks. And so God calls his, the people of God to be agents of change, to be different, to live in His ways, to be a glimpse of His kingdom. And we can hope in His promises. We can trust in His character. And that's what our faith is. Trusting that God is making all things new and He's called us to be a part of it. But it's challenging. Now, when we talk about the object of faith, I want to. Uh, Tim Keller once said this, and he's talking about salvation, but he said, It is not the strength of your faith, but rather the object of your faith that saves you. And when we're thinking of this, when we think of faith, it's important that we take the the responsibility off of ourselves, I'll get to that in a moment, there is a responsibility we have as it relates to faith, but it's very important that we understand the object of our faith is what saves us. Think of it this way. I have this stool on the stage. I believe and I have faith that if I sit on this stool, I can trust this stool and it's promised to me that it will hold me up. I have faith that this stool will do it. Now, if my faith is weak in this stool, it doesn't change the object of the stool. The stool is either going to hold me up or it will not. But I have faith that the stool can hold me up. And that faith allows me to sit, but then to lift my feet. Now, if I didn't have the, the strength of my faith may cause me to live differently. If I didn't totally trust the stool, I'll probably sit like this. But it doesn't change whether the stool can hold me up. See, we're talking about the object of our faith is what's important here. We're talking about our belief in, our, in God and His character and His promises. Those don't change. 
Our level of being able to trust Him changes. And all of these stories that we're going to look at are people who were willing to sit and lift their feet and say, we trust the object of our faith will hold us up. But it's important to know that we are talking about the object of our faith is what we have faith in. It's interesting that over 70% of our nation right now says if you're looking to better yourself, you need to have faith in yourself. Look inside for the strength you need to live. 70%, that includes a lot of Christians. Let me tell you, I am so happy that I don't have to trust how good I am to get through this world. I learned to have trust and faith. And the object of my faith is not the stool. It's of God and His promises. Now, this whole series, though, is about something more than just the object of the faith. Can you imagine if I said, chair or stool, I I trust you that you will hold me up. I'm so thankful for your promise that you will hold me up. I'm so thankful that you are there for me. You are the best stool in the world. I love this stool. Thank you, stool, for holding me up. And then I live my life like this. Standing next to the stool. And when I start getting tired... The stool looks at me and says, hey, why don't you just have a seat? You can rest. I say, like, thank you. Thank you that if I need to rest, you are there for me. I love you, stool. That is so, I am so grateful that you are there for me to rest. Getting tired. And the stool says, well, you can always rest. You can trust me. Like, I totally trust you. I totally trust you, stool. That's good. Thank you. Yeah. You know, many of us live our Christian faith like that. We thank the stool. Okay. We thank God weekly. We're so grateful that we can trust His promises. There are times when God says, Hey, do you trust me? Yeah, I totally do. Okay, take your feet off the ground. And go, ah. Maybe later. <laughs> i got to teach the people about you this week. Come on. This series is about men and women who sat, lifted their legs. The series is about the challenge to you and to me to sit, to lift our legs and say, if we trust you, God, if we trust your character and your promises, if this is who you say you are, if you are who you are, if we have assurance and things that we hope for, then why wouldn't we sit? We can swing our legs. We can trust that you are there, that your promises are true. So as we look at these stories, may we be people who sit, who swing our legs, who trust in His goodness. One thing I love about this is, look at verse 2. As it continues, he says, For by faith men of old, and this is men and women of old as we get the context, by faith people gained approval. See, Gaining approval isn't that all of a sudden God says, oh, okay, now you're good. But it's faith that saves us. The willingness to rest and throw ourselves on the goodness of what God has done. I'm not holding myself up right now at all. The chair is. When I trust in God's promises and live a life of faith, I'm not doing anything great. I'm just trusting that God is who He says He is. And the faith is credited as righteousness. 
looked upon us and said, now that is faith. Your faith is evidence that you really believe. So as he continues now on in chapter 11, we're going to take a little glimpse at the first story. And we're just, this one's a short one today. We're going to look at it just briefly. So the whole context here, every week, may we remember that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen, of the eternal world, of the promises of God rooted in the character of God. These are things that we hope for. By faith in chapter, or in verse 3, says, We understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Now verse 4, By faith Abel, he offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Now we're going to stop right there. Because he mentions this story here of Abel and Cain. And many of you are probably familiar with the story of Cain and Abel, and some of you may not be. But what we're going to do today is we're going to take this as a case study for our Vintage Faith series and look at Cain and Abel. And it is a short series, but let's look, or story. Let's look all the way back now to Genesis chapter 4, to the story of Cain and Abel. Now, if you are like me and you've read this story before, this is one of those stories. A couple of years ago, we did a summer series called Things That Make You Go, Hmm? You guys remember that? When you read stories in scripture and you read it and you just say, Really? Why is that in there? Or where are the cliff notes? There's got to be some more details. This, this often for me is kind of one of those. So let's read it in chapter 4 of Genesis. It says this. Man had relations with his wife and, and conceived and gave birth to Cain. And he said, I've begotten a man child with the help of the Lord. My wife said that when our first son was born. And uh, <laughs> again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks and Cain was a tiller of the ground. So one was a shepherd and one was a gardener. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. So something that he had grown in the ground, he brought an offering to God. Abel, on his part, also brought the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became angry and his countenance fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Okay, so, and then he goes on and kills his brother. Okay, so, um, <laughs> you can read that on your own. Because the important thing is what, he, what we refer back to here in Hebrews, and I do encourage you to read the rest of the story. This is one of those, when you read it, it's very difficult. You just read it and kind of say, okay, there's some missing pieces to this. So let's do a little case study here. If you read a passage of scripture like this, tell me out loud right here, what are some questions that come to mind when you read this that you want to know? What are some questions that come to mind in this brief story? Why wasn't Cain's offering good now? That is a good question. His brother brings some calf, and he brings some watermelon. The watermelon was not good enough. Not fair. Watermelon should be offered. <laughs> good question. What else? It's the only thing you guys want to know? <laughs> Any other questions? What was God thinking? Yeah. 
I ask that every day. <laughs> yeah, what, what's he thinking? Why is... Anything more to that? Just what is he thinking? Yeah. 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 It's... Exactly. It does seem like God's playing favorites, doesn't it? Yeah. He likes the younger sibling. <laughs> what's that? Okay, yeah, a good question. So that's the next level question. Maybe, did Cain give his best? That's a great question. So now we're getting into the nature of what did Cain actually give? What did he actually give? Good question. Anything else? Well, that's enough. We'll start with that for the sake of time. But I, I, I just want to encourage you, when you read these stories, don't just pass over them and do what's, what comes natural, which is, huh? Okay, next, and keep reading. Stop and start asking those questions. Nolan, Denise, and Nett here in our church, have, they actually wrote a book, How to Read the Bible So It Speaks to You. And one of the things they, they cause us, ask us to do is stop and ask those questions. What are the facts? What are the things you see here? What's happening? Sometimes we just need to stop and start and, and ask those questions. Okay, what's going on? Now, the Hebrews, the writer in Hebrews gives us more context. He kind of tells us what at that point was a common understanding was that something about the nature of their sacrifices obviously were not the same. Now I need to make a statement here, and I believe it to be true. They, we don't have all the contact. But to this point, there was no system set up, at least that we know of, saying you have to bring these certain things. This doesn't seem to be a sin offering that you would have to offer the blood of an animal. This seems to be a thank offering. The language is the same through in Leviticus that indicates that this is a gift given to God as a thankful offering. So there is no requirement that one should be an animal, one is not. It seems fair that if Cain doesn't have animals, he can't give one. So it's not because he gave fruit to God that that wasn't good enough. So maybe something deeper in that question is that question of what exactly was the nature of Cain's offering. And if we are to believe, now think of this. What are some of the promises of God or the character of God that don't match up with this story or don't seem to match up? When we, when we think of the question, is God being unfair? Well, what does the rest of Scripture tell us about God? Is He fair? Yeah. So throughout the rest of Scripture, we learn that God is just, that He is fair, that He is good. So if He is good, if He is just, if He is fair, if He is merciful, and one offering is not accepted, but the other is, then there's something wrong with that offering, not God. You see, often we like to look at faith and the world often looks at God and says there's got to be something wrong with God. Because we're humans, there's nothing wrong with us. <laughs> and the first thing we often do is we point to, we have to blame someone, so we might as well blame God. And here even it's easy to, Cain, he says his countenance falls. Something about it, he says, Fine. God, I'm not good enough for you. That wasn't good enough. But he knew. He had to have known. Because if God is good, there was something about Cain's attitude. Something about his sacrifice wasn't good enough. Was it the best he had to offer? It seems probably not. It says that Cain brought an offering to the Lord and the fruit of the ground. But Abel brought the firstlings of his fruit, of his flock. The fat portions, the things that were the best that he had, he brought them to God. So the author here in Genesis tells us that Abel brought the best. 
And in the ancient world, when you had a flock, when you had animals, this represented your livelihood. It represented your power. It represented your prestige. And the fatter the, the, the animal, that was when you were to have a distinguished guest, you would take the fattest, the best animal you had and slaughtered it. So something about, we see here that Abel's offering was, he went to God and he brought the very best and said, here's a gift. Here's a gift for you. And when we read this, look what Abel is trusting in. He's trusting that God is a provider. He's trusting if he gives his best, that that's okay. That God can supply everything he needs. Abel trusts if he gives up some of his prestige, the size of his flock, that he's still okay with that. He trusts that he still has value in the eyes of God. It doesn't relate to how many cows he has in his barn. See, Abel is demonstrating here that he had trust. He had the assurance of things hoped for. He hoped in the character and promises of God. God will provide. God will be there. God will take care of me. The the Lord God is enough for me. Cain, we don't have evidence of that. Cain brought an offering. Perhaps he just had a harvest and said, you know what? Okay, I'm going to bring this bushel. This is worthless. Got to give it somewhere. There's only two of us, my brother and I, so I'm going to give it to God. He didn't give his best. Could it be that Cain, the real issue was Cain wasn't trusting in God. He wasn't trusting that God could provide for him. He wasn't hoping in the promises and the character of God. He was hoping in himself. I'll give you, I'll give you some of myself, God, but just not that much. And immediately his countenance falls. And then later he deceives his brother and kills him. <laughs> you know, the word Cain in Hebrew is, is related to the word for envy. I wonder if Cain looked at his brother and he envied what his brother had. Maybe he was jealous. Maybe he said, God, why is my brother this rich farmer with flocks? And I'm running the botanical gardens of Eden. <laughs> East of Eden, just outside of Eden. That's where you put me, God. I wish I had what he had. Because what I have isn't as good as his, so here, take it. I don't trust that where you have me, Lord, is enough. And now we have our modern Hebrew word for envy from Cain. He didn't trust that where God had him was enough for him. So he didn't live in a way where he trusted his God, the Creator. The challenge for us today is as we think about these stories and, and continue on in this, this series throughout the rest of the summer, is what are the promises that are rooted in the character of God that we struggle with to believe? And what are the things that God is calling us to as his followers to sit down and lift our feet and to trust Him in. And if we do that, what would it look like for our relationships? What would it look like in our families? What would it look like in work? If we trust in God's goodness and His promises and live that way. See, God has called us 
to be representatives of his future kingdom. We should be representatives of the promises he's given to mankind. The world should look at the way you and I live and trust that that is, that is the way things, that is a picture of what is good. It's a picture of God restoring and redeeming. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter writes this, You, followers of Jesus, are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You've been called so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You and I have been called and placed under God's lordship. We are His people and the reason we're here is so that we may proclaim through our lives all the goodness of our Creator. We are representatives of His character and of His promises, the way we live. Gabe Lyons in his book, Good Faith, which for any of you who are really wrestling with how can I live out my Christian life in modern context, this book was written this year. It deals with racism, it deals with the LGBT questions, it deals with uh, pro-life, it deals with some politics, um, so obviously nothing relevant to us, right? <laughs> this book is called Good Faith, and he, and he explores the question, how do followers of Jesus live Good faith in a world that looks at, and the subtitles for the Christian, in a world that thinks you're extreme and irrelevant. <laughs> he is, explores this topic of faith in a very powerful way. But in it, he says this. As Christians think of our future, that we're a reflection of what God has for us in the future. The vision of the future should infect how we imaginatively engage our work, our relationships, and our society. We can walk forward with hope and joy because we know the good ending to the story that we are living in. See, when we trust that God's promises are true, when we trust that there's a good ending to the story that we're living in, that our God is making all things new, that He is restoring, and we can engage with Him in that work with the rest of creation, then the way that should infect how we work, how we have our relationships with each other, how we interact with society on these tough, toughest issues. And we can start to p- show a better way forward. And brothers and sisters, we need to. If ever there was a time for the people of God to rise up and live out the ways of Jesus, now is the time. Our nation and our world needs to see what it looks like to have people who fully trust in God and His character and His promises, who lift our feet and trust in who He is and live out His ways to show a better way forward for our nation, to show a better way forward for interactions with each other. We're called to be that. We're called to do that. And this is a time for us to lead. We're going to end our time. I'm inviting the worship team back up. And we're going to end our time this morning with communion. And I think it's appropriate that we we take some time to reflect. When, When we participate in the in the sacrament of communion uh, for us it's it's a reminder of the life the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ it reminds us of the life that Jesus lived the example that he left for us and it reminds us of the sacrifice he made to fulfill that first promise to end the penalty of sin in our lives And we remember His resurrection tells us that there is hope. That it didn't end at the cross. 
That when Jesus rose from the grave, that meant that He had conquered sin and death. And there's hope for you and me today. And there's hope for our friends. There's hope for our nation as we move forward. So as we take communion here in a moment and we we take the bread which represents the life of Jesus, the body of Jesus that was broken for us, may we remember the life He lived and the death He died for all all of mankind. All mankind. And as we take the cup and and, and drink the juice this morning, may we be reminded of the blood that He shed for you and for me. The life that He poured out. And may we also be reminded that we're called to be a part of that story. That He sent His Spirit to empower us to live our lives for the service of others as He did for us. So, as Paige uh, plays this next song, uh, we actually have two more songs. So you have two songs to take communion. And there's a few stations around. Um, whenever you're comfortable, feel free to get up and take of the bread and, and the cup. If you want to spend some time near the cross or in a corner of the room praying or praying for one another, we encourage you to do so. If you need to take some time to sit in your seat this morning and just pray and reflect, we encourage you to do so. Reflect on what Christ has done. And maybe you're here this morning and you say you're not a follower of Jesus. You're here because someone invited you or because you were walking by and needed a place to sit. This morning, would you be willing to to ask the question, Jesus, do you want me to follow you? Jesus, will you forgive me for my sins? And for those of you who are already followers, we'll remember Jesus. And today also, let me ask you, what is your faith? What is God calling you to do? Where do you need to lift your feet and trust in His goodness and His promises? So let's take time to pray and then you have two songs to take communion. God, we thank you. We thank you so much for the examples and stories of faith that we read throughout Scripture. Even the ones that sometimes are confusing, God, we thank you that we can see examples of those men and women who trusted in your promises trusted in your goodness, trusted in your ways. God, may we be a church who trusts you and trusts your ways. God, as we take communion here this morning, we ask that you would remind us of the work that Jesus did on the cross, remind us of his life, his death, his resurrection. God, we are so grateful that you sent your son. Jesus, we're so thankful that you were obedient death on the cross for our sins. May you receive our prayers and our praise as we end our time here today. Grateful people for who you are. Give you this time.